Today on Ag News Daily. At the end of the day, we still have to work with some cutting action. We're only putting down you know, 25 to 40 pounds, and many of these farmers are putting down 170 pounds of added in just to grow that corn. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by my co-host, Mike Pearson. Mike, today is WASD Day. It is a typically boring February WASD. was released today. A little more, a few more eyes on it today, waiting to see what USDA would do about phase one of the China deal, how they would incorporate those numbers into all of their calculations. And Delaney Howell, it ended up being a fairly boring February WASD day. Yeah, I mean... I think it was pretty boring. There were, I mean, it was somewhat friendly for beans, I suppose you could argue, but really kind of a non-event overall, it seems. Yeah, yeah, neutral, neutral to bullish, I would say, on the soybean side. A little bit of a cut in carryout there for beans. They brought down the ending stocks number from 475 to 425 million bushels. Um, definitely friendly. The analyst expectations were huge, huge range. Analysts had it going anywhere all the way down to 390 million bushels to growing up to 520 million bushels for the carryout. I guess a lot of folks got burned last month when uh, USDA did not adjust the soybean carryout. They were kind of hedging their bets today, and, you know, it came in on the low end of expectations, more or less where most of the trade was figuring things would be. That was really the only positive news that we got out of this USDA wheat side definitely was perceived by the market as bearish. We'll get to that when we talk market prices a little bit later on, but we saw wheat sell off hard after the uh, WASDE report, even though, again, fairly bullish or at least neutral mm-hmm. expectations with regard to the carryout. It was reduced on the wheat side. There was the expectation of uh, a few more exports than uh, we have seen in the past. But at the end of the day, boy, it was not enough to keep the wheat bulls happy, and the bears just kind of ran the table. Yeah, and that kind of dominated the headlines today, Mike. But there are still a couple other news stories, tricklings here and there we should probably make our listeners aware of. Yes, Delaney, which ones are you keeping an eye on? Well, I want to kick things off here looking at, we talked about the budget yesterday, which is something that we're going to continue to watch, especially when you consider that if we had a Democrat that stepped into office, we could see things, uh, I guess, swing really far the other way when it comes to crop insurance, infrastructure for rural America and whatnot. But we did see, I suppose this could be considered good news for agriculture if you want to consider that Um, but as far as trade goes we saw the house cleared a bill which would basically authorize more folks to be at the borders both in airports and our borders I assume with Mexico and Canada both to check out and train 240 new agricultural specialists as well as 20 new inspection dog teams to have at each of our ports of entry. I think this is important because of biosecurity issues with African swine fever and whatnot. And so we saw the House clear that by a voice vote on Monday. And it's largely intended to protect us from plant and animal diseases biosecurity measures, etc., specifically African swine fever. I don't really think there's anything you can do to protect from the coronavirus, as I understand it, Mike, but... 
Yeah, not not that we know about yet. Anyway, I'm sure there are some kind of measures that could be taken, but yeah, as far as right now, right? It's yeah, all kind of a wild card on the coronavirus. And so this was approved in the 2020 fiscal year budget. Don't know yet if we're going to see any increases for 2021. I also don't know. I ha- I have this question just to myself with President Trump coming up for re-election, does he get to decide what the fiscal budget is for 2021? I assume they vote on it this year, but I guess I don't know. Well, again, now we're backing into theoretical territory, Delaney. We're assuming that there will actually be a budget. It was uh, indicated earlier, say perhaps late yesterday, Mitch McConnell came out after President Trump released his budget and said, you know, we're really not going to bother with a budget Mm. this year. We're just going to look at the spending caps that were negotiated last year between the Republicans and the Democrats in the House and Senate, and we're just going to basically increase everything to the max of what those spending caps allow and call it good. So, okay. <laughs> you know, it's right. Theoretically, yeah, it, it, it would fall under this president, President Trump, and this Congress to determine the budget for 2021 since it is a fiscal year. But given the flux of things in D.C., it sounds like it's just not going to be much of anything. However, I think the more important thing you mentioned there was that the increase in inspections, that those funds were voted on by the House, but they have not yet been kicked over to mm-hmm. the Senate. Is that right? Yes, correct. Gotcha. Well, you know, we've got some news. Well, since you mentioned coronavirus there, um, we have seen actually the coronavirus do some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Cause some changes to pork prices in China. There has been, at least amongst a small subset of Twitter market analysts, some discussion. Okay, will coronavirus end up being bearish domestic hog prices in China? Folks are staying in. Obviously, they're not going out. They're they're scared to go to marketplaces. Some of them are dying. All of these things should lead to a decrease in the price of pork. That's one argument. The other side says, yeah, but... These people have nothing to do but eat. They're trapped in their homes. They're not allowed to go to work, although some of them now are trickling back into into their offices. And they're going to want to eat, and they have the money they want to eat well. That's going to cause prices to increase. Well, we now have an answer to that question. It was reported earlier today that China's pork prices have surged amidst Mm. coronavirus, up near last year's record high prices, not really because of demand, but because of supply. As we mentioned, when this coronavirus was spreading, the government of China put travel restrictions, and these travel restrictions hit a number of key transport cities, including Wuhan. Well, what that has meant is that pigs aren't able to get around the countryside into packing plants, and slaughter plants, which had been operating, were shut down during the the 10-day Lunar New Year's Festival. Most of them aren't fully operational yet, so we've basically seen the supply of pork into the Chinese marketplace completely dry up, and that is causing pork prices at the retail level to skyrocket. So Japanese consumers, when they venture out of their house, when they venture away from their workplaces... You mean Chinese consumers. What did I say? I think you said Japanese. Well, I meant Chinese. I apologize to all of our listeners. Um, I I was looking at at an ad for sushi, and... uh, (laughs) started thinking Japan and started thinking California roll sounds fairly decent right now. But uh, but yeah, the Chinese people, they are being confronted with record high prices mm. for pork, which I should be bullish for our right. pork market as China looks to fulfill its you know price uh, obligations or its import obligations under the phase one deal. But you know, we didn't see that much of that move the market today. No. 
It doesn't sound like it. But we did, however, have a report published by the Tariffs Hurt the Heartland campaign, which is kind of an independent party. They do a lot of, we'll call it lobbying, as well as studies and talks with producers. And they put together a new report, which was published yesterday, Mike, looking at the trade war damages and said that in or since February of 2018, the last time they kind of did this report, we've seen the trade wars, not just with China, but also the EU and Canada and Mexico, cost consumers about $50 billion. In December, for example, Americans paid about $6.3 billion in duties compared to just 2.6 in December of 2017, before all of these trade tensions really started. So, again, as you said, that cost of tariffs isn't something that China is paying for. It's something that we're paying as consumers to bring in the cost of those goods. That's exactly right, Delaney. Tariffs are taxes on us. And, uh, yeah, you know, of course, a lot of those goods coming out of China, despite the tariffs, remain the cheapest in the sector, or perhaps Chinese suppliers Mm -hmm. are the only suppliers. So if you want to put those things in your shopping cart, you're going to have to write a bigger check, and Uncle Sam's going to get a bigger share. So it was definitely a a large $50 billion tax on uh, the American people, which uh, kind of sucks. It does. In addition to completely decimating ag exports to our largest purchaser. But, you know, a lot of folks have mixed opinions on uh, the tariffs. They think that perhaps in the long run this is a good thing, and, yeah, I guess time will tell. Time will tell. We shall see. We shall see. And I was just going to say, I had one other piece of news that ties in nicely to that. Looking at another potential trade partner, it won't won't be one that's as big as China, but it seems that the U.K. and the U.S., now that Brexit is kind of wrapped up and finished, will be looking at a free trade agreement here pretty shortly. Uh, we saw that happen, that separation Brexit happened on January 31st. And so according to an anonymous source, agriculture tariffs and non-tariff trade barriers are on the table between U.S. and Britain as trade negotiations, a free trade agreement, gets rolling here. They get rolling, but uh, Larry Kudlow, President Trump's economic advisor, came out again, I think it was yesterday. My days kind of blur together. Maybe it was Sunday. And uh, there's been some concern amongst our friends over in the English countryside because it, it was hoped that really once Brexit happened, this trade deal would be top of mind. Britain would or England would be able to roll up, say, here's what we want. The U.S. would say, nah, okay, here's what we want. We'd start negotiating. We'd rock and roll. Well, what has happened, it sounds like, is that uh, Brexit happened. This trade deal wasn't fully prepared. And Larry Kudlow came out and he said, we are in the preliminary stages of preliminary talks. So it definitely sounds as though the EU, or not the EU, rather, the England-U.S. free trade agreement is in process, but it is a long way from finished. And that has some uh, some of our English friends a little concerned because, you know, they're going to need friendly trade partners to really make a mm-hmm. go of it uh, without their ties to the EU. That's a very good point, Mike. I really hadn't considered that one in thinking that they're going to need somebody to scratch their backs during this time. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, the feelings are a little hurt with the rest of the EU countries. So, you know, the U.S. has certainly always had a a, uh, good relationship with England when we're not uh, fighting them for our independence, obviously. And, um, you know, I'm sure something will come of it. President Trump seems very determined to get a trade deal in place. Um, The the folks over in England seem very determined to 
see what happened. It just doesn't sound like it's going to be anytime soon. All right. Well, Mike, do you have any other news, or should we talk a little bit more about the WASDI and the markets for today? Well, I just have an interesting story, and it's one that just came to my attention today. It is definitely going to merit some more investigation, but this is being brought up to my attention via Reuters. Um, We've talked for quite a little while about JBS and the troubles they have been having down in Brazil, the Batista brothers, the owners of JNF Investimentos, the company that owns JBS, has been under fire. In fact, they've been indicted and imprisoned for bribery and various you know, financial fraud type of situations. Well, JBS USA, the American subsidiary of JBS SA, the South American company, has been looking to take itself public. And uh, they've been discussing doing this on U.S. stock exchanges. And that's hit a snag. And it's hit a snag for a variety of reasons. But in Brazil, JBS is alleging that the snags it has hit have happened because of a bad business deal with an Indonesian billionaire. Um, This is very much inside baseball type stuff. It's back page, smoky room kind of negotiations and all of this. But basically... JBS or JNF Investimentos made a deal with a company called Paper Excellence, which is owned by this Jackson Wadhaja, who is this billionaire in Indonesia. And this Paper Excellence was going to buy some things from JBS. Then the deal fell apart. And JBS is saying that since that deal fell apart, this Paper Excellence company from Indonesia has been hiring armies of lobbyists. This is the JBS quote to change public opinion about JBS in the U.S. They are alleging that it was paper excellence that first made the stink about JBS receiving the funds from the bailout, from the, the, the Trump uh, MFP payments back in the early part of last year. And they are saying that this paper excellence is doing their best to scuttle the chance that JBS has to launch their North American arm as a public company. Now, Like I say, there's a lot of details. It's a lot of back and forth. So far, all of this is coming out in court documents as JBS attempts to sue and enter renegotiations with this paper excellence company. I'm going to keep an eye on it. It's weird. It's one of those things where we're learning how the sausage is made, so Mm. to speak, in the meat industry. Do you make that anything will actually happen or come to fruition from this? Yeah, well, who knows? Who knows? At the end of the day, all of this is happening in Brazilian court. So if anything does happen, it is going to happen in Brazil. Basically, it sounds like uh, the Batista brothers are effectively going to try to sue this Indonesian fellow for damages. So that's what they're trying to do. What it means for actually listing JBS uh, USA as an American company, who knows? But when these things get going and you get discovery going in court... All kinds of things come right. So it could be very interesting. Okay. Well, you keep an eye on that one. I will. I will keep following. Okay. Well, Delaney, let's see. Do you have any other WASD news before we get to the markets today? I think I'm all out, Mike. The only other news that we didn't mention at the top of the show that I think bears mentioning is the fact that USDA did increase the Brazilian soybean crop. Um, previously, you know, they had it roughly at 120 million metric tons. They increased it to 125 million metric tons, and some market analysts have been saying that that Brazilian crop could climb as high as 130 million metric tons of soybeans coming out of Brazil, which would be by and away 
far away rather, the largest soybean crop to come out of Brazil. So that is one of those things that uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on. Certainly not great news for soybeans, especially as the Brazilian real falls to its cheapest rate against the dollar in years, which it did yesterday, making Brazilian beans that much cheaper for our foreign competitors to purchase. That is definitely a point to watch as well, or a good point to make, Mike. Yeah, well, with that out of the way, let's dive in and see how the markets ended up digesting this February WASDE report. Delaney, what do you say? Let's do it. All right, folks. And we saw mixed trade in the grains, corn and wheat lower, beans unchanged to slightly higher in the March contract. Looking at corn right off the bat, the March contract was down two cents, three seventy nine and three quarters. The May down two and a quarter, closed at three eighty four and a quarter. In soybeans, the March was up half a penny to finish at eight eighty four and three quarters. The May unchanged on the day, finished at eight ninety seven and a quarter. The big loser today was the wheat market. Chicago wheat in particular, March contract dropped ten cents, closed at five forty two even. The May down seven and a half to finish at five forty four even. Looking over at the world of livestock we've got weakness all down the screen in livestock in live cattle the april contract dropped a dollar 50 at 117.1750 the june down a dollar 32 half to finish the day at 109 12 and a half in feeder cattle the march contract dropped a dollar 0250 closing at 134.6750 the april down 80 cents to close at 136.7250 and in lean hogs weak but not incredibly weak the april contract dropped 85 cents on the day at 64.22 half the may down 60 cents closing at 73.80 Looking over at the dairy market, mixed trade today with the February up a penny in Class 3 milk, closing at 17.05. The March down a nickel, wrapping it up at 17.24. Without further ado, Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're speaking to for today's interview? Well, Mike, I caught up with Mark Reisinger, who is the Vice President for Pivot Bio for today's Hashtag Tech Tuesday interview. Well, we are joined today for another Tech Tuesday interview with Mark Reisinger, Vice President of Commercial Operations at Pivot Bio. Mark, super excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining. Thank you very much, Lee. So, Mark, tell us what is Pivot Bio? How do you guys fit into really the agronomic and also technology space within agriculture? Sure. So, uh, Pivot Bio is introducing a novel technology it was uh, created the company was created in 2011 and we are a nitrogen company now we don't deliver nitrogen through conventional or historic means you know the entire world is dependent upon Haber Bosch produced nitrogen that's nitrogen that's been used in row crop agriculture for years and years and years and it's derived through the use of highly in energy-intensive process using synthetic means and heavily relying on propane to produce nitrogen that farmers then use as anhydrous ammonia and put down in, in corn, uh, most commonly here in the state of Iowa, at least. Uh, our company, which was founded in 2011, thought maybe they could take a little bit different tangent on this, and instead of using uh, uh, propane or a hugely in energy-intensive process in a manufacturing capacity, they chose to move that production capacity for nitrogen into the soil and have the nitrogen generated by microbes. Now, soybeans today uh, utilize inoculants. Those are uh, 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 bacteria that produce nodes on the roots of soybeans, 
And if you cut the node and you see the node is pink, you know it's producing nitrogen for the soybean plant. And we've been using those for decades to improve soybean yield. But cereal crops, wheat, uh, corn, other grasses, they don't have an equivalent like legumes do for inoculants. And that's really where the idea came from in 2011 when our two founders, Karsten Temme and Alvin Tamsmere, who are working on a postgraduate degree together in a lab at UC San Francisco, came up with this idea of uh, utilizing microbes in a similar way to, to beans or legumes, only for cereals. Got it. Well, that is a very neat kind of origin story of the company. Mark, digging into it a little bit more, and we've got some folks that may be pretty sciencey, but I myself am not a huge science nerd. Explain to me what how the microbials work to facilitate nitrogen for cereal crops. Absolutely. So we place the microbe, which is a liquid, into the furrow when you plant corn. So it goes on in one pass with the seed. The microbe in its commercial state has the ability to produce uh, a minimum of 25 pounds and up to a 40-pound equivalent of synthetic nitrogen. Uh, what it does is it actually binds to the epidermis of the root system of the corn plant and it colonizes or grows in a mutualistic fashion with the plant. The reason it grows with the plant is its only food source is the exudates, which are the carbon and sugars being produced by the root ball. And, and any farmer knows that if you go out and dig up a corn plant and, and feel the root ball, it's going to feel sticky. That sticky substance on the roots are the exudates being exuded by the corn plant. That is this microbe's only food source. But one really interesting component of this is you know, regardless how good our technology is to bring these microbes forward, uh, we do not have the ability to make a microbe produce nitrogen. All we can do as a company is, and a lot of our IP is around what we call upregulating or improving microbes that have the innate ability to produce nitrogen. So every microbe that we have in our pipeline and our commercial product, Pivot Bio Proven, which has the ability to produce a minimum of 25-pound equivalent on corn plants per acre uh, per growing season, the microbe that we're actually using had the innate ability, but in its native state, it was only producing, say, three or four pounds. So we've been able to improve this microbe and also uh, uh, limit its own ability to self-regulate because the, the biggest challenge for these microbes was first finding microbes that have the ability to produce nitrogen, which that's part of our IP portfolio. And then also encouraging them to produce on a constant basis because every microbe that we found that has the ability to produce nitrogen in the presence of nitrogen chooses to shut down. And you know what? makes a lot of sense. I'd much rather sit on the couch and run a marathon 24 <laughs> hours a day. But we make these microbes do just that. And because of that, they produce that 25 pounds between V4, the fourth vegetative uh, growth stage of a plant, and R4, which is after tassel. So when the corn plant needs it the most, and, and uh, for those that might not know and you're listening on Insta, a corn plant up to V4 is going to take about one pound per acre a day into the plant or store for future use. At V4 or V5, that plant's going to go from one pound a day or acre to about 2.3 to 2.5 pounds a day until it hits tassel. And then the whole plant switches from vegetative to reproductive and starts 
utilizing all of that energy that's stored up, which is in, in part the nitrogen also. So what we have found is a microbe that produces on that same cycle, thus hugely beneficial or And this is nitrogen that doesn't leak. So when we say you're going to get 25 pounds from our microbe, you're actually going to get it because we produce NH3, which converts instantly to NH4, and it can be readily absorbed by the plant. Because we're producing it minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, we're not front-loading it as current conventional practices on our farm in, say, Hardin County, where Dad and I farm together. You know, we front-load all of our nitrogen either in the fall or the spring, and then it sits on what we call a degradation curve. So the most nitrogen you'll ever have on your soil is the day you put it in your soil. After that, it's going to potentially denitrify or leach or turn from a nitrate into a nitrite or just flat out be unavailable to the plant. Where our nitrogen is a little bit different because it's produced on the epidermis of the roots. It goes directly into the plant and you get 100% of the nitrogen produced by these microbes. Okay, I think I've got it, but I just want to clarify so I make sure that I understand it as well as our listeners fully. So are you guys essentially introducing a new microbe into the soil, or are you just using some sort of application to enhance the microbes that already exist within the soil profile? Yeah, great question, great question. So the microbe that we're using, which is Pivot Bile Proven, the first microbe, we actually discovered, although it exists nationwide, but we found it in Missouri uh, in in corn country. And that was another uh, uh, big driver for our founders. They wanted to find a microbe that was domestic. They didn't want to introduce an exotic microbe. You know, we we don't have the technology to build microbes. That's not what we do. But we found a microbe that has the ability in Missouri to produce nitrogen. And we had to look at it. We found, in fact, uh, many microbes that have the ability to produce nitrogen. So we evaluated them to determine, are they, you know, show ponies, do they look good, but maybe don't produce, or are they real workhorses? And this first microbe is a true workhorse. We were able to improve it uh, through breeding and other processes to get it from, say, that four-pound potential to 25-pound potential. But it is a microbe that exists in nature. The only issue is because we upregulate it or encourage it to produce every minute, every hour, every day during the growing cycle, it burns itself out. So it can't persist into the next season, unlike in its native form where it could shut off and survive longer. Oh, okay. So then the next growing season, do you have to reintroduce this microbe then back into that same soil sample or same area? We do. And and we've done uh, a significant amount of work to determine whether we could produce a microbe that had the same type of nitrogen yield and would survive maybe one or two seasons, uh, but we haven't yet been able to uh, uh, develop that kind of technology. What we do is because of you know increasing the output of this microbe, it literally burns itself out by about V4. And by V8, you can't even find it in the soil. Gotcha. Okay. Very interesting. So, Mark, I want to also ask, I noticed on the website that you say you guys are basically looking for a more sustainable and safer way for farmers to use nitrogen. Tell me, sustainability is such a buzzword right now for farmers and for agriculture. Tell me from Pivot Bio standpoint, what does that mean to you, a sustainable system? Sure. Well, if you figure that in, and you can go to, you know, any land-grant institution like Iowa State University and, and look at the papers that have been published, 
most academics will agree that up to 60% of the nitrogen that people apply today, especially in light soils, is lost before the corn plant or the corn crop can utilize it. So it's, you know, ending up in the waterways, which we've heard a tremendous amount. And, and you know, we, we can't blame farmers because they're trying to feed the world. These are the tools that are available to them. But nonetheless, every farmer knows that they want to get the value out of the inputs they're putting into the field. They don't want to lose money simply because the nitrogen isn't able to hold. You know, uh, the corn suitability rating dictates how much, based on the CDC, how much nitrogen we can probably hold in that soil. And we push our soils to hold nitrogen because without nitrogen, you can't create a yield ceiling. You know, you can't maximize the uh, uh, potential yield or profitability of that acre. The difference with, you know, our product is it doesn't leach. So instead of losing 60%, which if you were trying to put 25 pounds down, that means you had to apply 40 to get the 25 pounds in the plant. If you want 25 pounds in the plant of our product, you put down the 25 pound product because we don't leach. And the reason we don't leach is a corn plant, like I said earlier, can only absorb so much every day. But if it misses a day, it can't make it up. So up to V4, it can take in one pound. And then after V4, V5 to about castle, it can take in 2.3 to 2.5 pounds a day. Our product produces within that margin. So everything that we're producing can go straight into the plant. And because of proximity, we also know that it's going to be utilized. In fact, we studied this extensively. So we don't have leaching, which is great from a sustainability outlook, but it's also great from a value component uh, for our growers to know that that 25 to 40 pound equivalent is going to be in the plant at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that's that's phenomenal to see those kind of results. Uh, and speaking of results, then tell me about some of the in-farm applications that you've used, some of the, we'll just say, customer or farmer success stories. Sure. So, you know, we've, we've seen tremendous success exactly where uh, if, if you took Agronomy 101 or 301 at Iowa State or any of the land-grant schools, they would have taught you what the CEC is and that, you know, white soils have a harder time holding nutrients. Well, this last year, we all know how much rain the entire nation in the Corn Belt received. And we had a lot of areas that washed out. You know, they had spring application or a fall application, and they literally received gully washers thereafter, and they lost a lot of the nitrogen they had applied. You know, we saw people that had swings of 30 bushel plus using our product simply because there was no other nitrogen that was readily available to the plant other than ours. But those weren't that, 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 you know, this isn't a brag because these people that had 30 bushel plus, their corn crops were still terrible. It's just they had 30 bushel plus because on area in our crop, but it was yield because this isn't a magic bullet. At the end of the day, we still have to work with synthetic nitrogen. We're only putting down, you know, 25 to 40 pounds, and many of these farmers are putting down 170 pounds of added in just to grow that corn crop, or at least. On our farm, we're putting down 178 pounds per acre. So, you know, we're we're seeing a significant difference because of the lack of leaching. So that's a huge advantage for our customers and peace of mind. But, you know, it's still something that we have to work on. And we want to grow the amount of pounds per acre that we're putting down. And we believe with our Gen 2 product, we'll be able to do just that. Well, that is very neat. Mark, before I let you go, Folks listening then that want to find more information, where should they go? How should they do that? The, the best place to learn more about our technology, we have a great uh, uh, demonstration video on how the technology actually works. 
and I like pictures better than, you know, I, I like listening to people sometimes. And, and, and the how-to video on pivotbio.com is fantastic. There, there's plenty of articles to read about uh, the performance to date, our whole plant nitrogen study that showed we had a 38-pound advantage over synthetic nitrogen last year in, in dozens of sites. All of that is on our website at pivotbio.com, and even my phone number is on pivotbio.com. If anybody wants to call me and talk more about what I offer today, you know, my name's Mark Reisinger. Number's right on the website. We're a small enough company. I'm still happy to talk to anybody that uh, can get me on the phone. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks for joining today. Thank you very much, Wayne. All right. Again, thank you there to Mark for filling us in. Interesting stuff that they are doing over there, Mike. It is. It's really fascinating that they've actually developed these microbes that can Mm -hmm. produce nitrogen out of the air. It's fascinating. Could be a game changer. I'm really excited to see what Pivot does as the year goes on. Me too. It's kind of magical, if you will. It's magical. Well, any science advanced enough is indistinguishable from magic. Delaney, that is a quote attributable to <laughs> not me, but yeah, I think it's it's always worth remembering when we start talking about the crazy stuff that scientists are able to create. Yeah, someone much smarter than you. Oh, yeah, like an actual scientist. Right, right. Well, listeners, if you want good quotes that come from us and other people, you can check out past editions of the Ag News Daily podcast. Visit our website at agnewsdaily.com and hear our past episodes as well as episodes of other podcasters on the Global Ag Network. Or interact with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know what's happening in your part of the world. How do planting intentions look where you are sitting? We'd love to hear that. Love to get updated. With that, Delaney Howe, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.